Hope you all had a wonderful Christmas. Uh, I know my wife and I did. We actually had like a, a uniquely chill Christmas this year, so that was good. Um, we're going to get into a rut with me preaching the Sunday after Christmas if we keep this up. I did it last year, so we got to be careful about that. Um, I'm obviously kidding. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to have the chance to fill in for Troy while he's away. Um, if you are newer, just know that I'm not normally up here. Uh, Troy's out of town and asked me to fill in for him this week. Um, so if it's terrible, come back next week. It'll probably be better. Um, but turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 14. Um, and as you do, let me apologize in advance. I've had some weird throat stuff the last couple days. So if I'm clearing my throat, um, I'm sorry. I'll try to I'll try to not be obnoxious with it. But this morning in Luke 14, we're talking about the true disciple. And in our passage today, Jesus separates those who call themselves disciples from those who are truly his disciples. And he makes it clear what it takes for us to be true disciples of him. And as we approach the new year, you know, everybody talks about New Year's resolutions. They want to lose weight. They want to drink less coffee, stuff like that. Show of hands, who has a New Year's resolution for this year? It's less and less people every year, but there's some of us, so that's good. From what I've read, only around 7% of people actually keep their resolutions beyond the first month or so, but I'm sure everyone in here is part of that 7%, so, um, so it's okay. But resolutions are hard because they typically involve changing your behavior in a way that requires you to be committed each and every day. You want to drink less coffee? Well, you have to decide every morning that I'm going to drink less coffee today because that's what I wanted to do. Well, this morning, we're not talking about New Year's resolutions. We're talking about being true disciples of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that doing that requires you to be committed each and every day. And my prayer is that we'll consider making this commitment together for 2022. So let's read in Luke 14, uh, verses 25 through 33. It says, And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father and mother, and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply... After he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. So three times in this passage, Jesus says if a person is not willing to do something, that person cannot be his disciple. So from this passage, we see three costs that are associated with being a true disciple of Christ. Three things that are required of a person if they really want to follow Jesus. Now what we need to clear up from the get-go is that this has nothing to do with your salvation. Your salvation is a free gift from God when you place your faith in Jesus Christ to pay for your sins with his sacrifice on the cross. So these three costs aren't things that you have to give up in order to get saved. To, be, to make sure we don't get that confused, the first thing I put on your study sheet is becoming a Christian is free, but there are some costs to being a true disciple. Hopefully that difference is clear. Jesus is talking about discipleship here, not salvation. Because unlike salvation, true discipleship is expensive. The word discipleship has the same root word as the word discipline, so it's not going to be something that's easy to do. And being a true disciple is being a true follower of Christ, and that assumes that you're already saved. No Christian works to get saved, and no Christian works to stay saved, but every Christian should do good works because they're saved. And that's what we'll see this morning as we look at what it takes to be a true disciple. You know, we always quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We love that verse. But don't forget to keep reading in verse 10. Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. 
So we don't need to be confused about this. Salvation is free. Discipleship isn't. Truly following after Jesus every day is not free. And we're not just talking about the 18 discipleship lessons that you have sitting at home in a binder either. We're talking about being that true disciple of Jesus. A true Christian who's truly and faithfully trying to follow Jesus and be more like him. So let's pray as we dig in this morning. God, we thank you so much for your word and we thank you for this holiday season that we just got to celebrate the fact that you came to the earth to live a human life and die to pay for our sins, Lord. And we thank you for that free gift and um, we're, we're grateful that you gave us the chance to accept it. But Lord, now that we've accepted it, we understand that we have some responsibilities if we really want to follow you and I pray that you'd help us understand those responsibilities this morning. And Lord, I pray that as you make that clear to us through your word, we would just, uh, in our hearts, commit to uh, doing whatever it is you ask us to do with our lives. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so this morning we're going to look at the three costs that Jesus mentions in this passage. The three costs of being a true disciple. And we're looking at this so we can really count the cost of what it's going to require of us to be true disciples of Jesus. Because it's not an easy thing to do. I can promise you that. And it'll be clear by the time we get through these costs. But if we count the costs on the front end, it makes uh, staying a true disciple easier when times get difficult, because times are gonna get difficult. Think about it this way. It would be difficult for you to agree to work a job if you didn't know what kind of work you were doing, how many hours you'd be working, or how much you'd be paid for those hours that you worked. Nobody would take a job like that. You wanna agree to those things beforehand so the employer and the employee can be on the same page and have the same expectations. Well, Jesus lays out some pretty clear expectations of us here in this passage, and he tells us to count the cost so that we have what it takes to finish strong. And he uses the example of a builder in verses 28 through 30, and that's a pretty straightforward example because it's not hard to understand building costs if you've ever built a home or other building. Especially in today's economy, uh, building materials and labor are costly, so you better make sure you have what it takes to pay for the entire project before you start building. You don't want to end up with a half a house and no money left over to finish it. You can't live in a house that's not complete. You might as well live outdoors. But the analogy of building is one that Paul applies to us as members of God's building in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, verses 9 through 15. So we can all build wisely with gold, silver, and precious stones, the stuff that lasts. Or we can build foolishly with wood, hay, and stubble, the stuff that burns away and doesn't last. And Jesus tells us in Luke 14 how to make sure that we're wise builders. That's not the only picture he uses. He also uses the example of a war in verses 31 and 32. And this picture is also understood by all of us, at least to some degree. I'm sure an actual soldier would understand better than me because they've lived this reality. But when a leader of an army makes a battle plan, they have to understand how their resources compare to their enemy's resources, at least as much as uh, that information allows because that information helps them plan how to best utilize their resources. And this is also a picture that Paul applies directly to us. 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 4 says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. So when you're a soldier of Jesus Christ, you understand that you can't get caught up in the affairs of this life because you have a war to fight. And you want to war a good warfare, like Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So when it comes to being a true disciple of Jesus, those are the two pictures we have to draw from, and both depending us, or depend upon us counting on the cost, or counting the cost up front, so that we know what it's going to take to finish. That way, when we, when we do what we need to do and those costs come due, we won't be caught off guard and derailed, because that's what happens when you don't count the cost up front. We keep pressing forward for the Lord. So let's dig into cost number one, your priorities. And that's what we see in verse 26. And at first glance, verse 26 might seem a little weird. might seem a little contrary to other parts of scripture. Let's read it again. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So the first cost of being a true disciple of Jesus Christ is you have to hate all your family members and you have to hate yourself too. It's pretty simple. Now that doesn't really seem to jive with other commands that we see in scripture, but the only reason it doesn't seem to jive with other parts of scripture 
is because we use the word hate differently than how Jesus is using it here. We typically define the word hate as the opposite of love. So in our common usage, hate today refers to an intense or passionate dislike of a person or thing. But we know that we're not supposed to intensely or passionately dislike our family members. Ephesians 6, 1 and 2 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother. So it's really difficult to honor someone or obey them if you intensely and passionately dislike them. Furthermore, look at what husbands are told to do in Ephesians 5.25. It says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So clearly, biblical hate cannot be the opposite of love, right? At least not the way Jesus is using it in verse 14. Why would Paul tell husbands to love their wives if Jesus is telling his disciples to hate their wives? So we clearly can't just apply our modern usage of the word hate to what Jesus is saying here. But what we can do is compare scripture with scripture and see that the word hate is frequently used as a relative term in the Bible. Many times the word hate is used in scripture. It's used as a way to compare someone's feelings between two different things. Uh, We can see that in Genesis 29, which talks about Jacob and and his two wives. Jacob Jacob 29, yeah. Genesis 29, verses 30 and 31 uh, say, And he went in also unto Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah, and served with him yet seven other years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And that gives us a definition for what it means to hate something. Leah was hated because Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. That doesn't mean that Jacob didn't love Leah at all. Even after he was tricked into marrying her, he loved her enough to stay with her and have children with her. He just didn't love her as much as he loved Rachel. Now that might not sound fair, but that's just one of the many reasons why guys shouldn't have more than one wife. Uh, We often don't do a good enough job loving one wife. Imagine adding another one to the mix. But the point here is when Jesus uses the word hate in Luke 14, he's using it in a relative sense, comparing uh, two different things. And the simple truth is that God doesn't like it when we put others before him and when we care about other things more than we care about him. This has been true since the beginning of time and it was made explicitly clear in the Ten Commandments, the very first of which is in Exodus 20, verse 3. It says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So, of course, we're going to love our families and we're to prioritize the people that we have in our lives. But we have to understand that Jesus expects us to make him our first priority. And technically, he should be the reasons behind all of our other priorities. Anything in our life that's in front of him is only going to hinder our ability to walk with him. That includes good things like our spouses, our parents, our kids, our grandkids, Those are the things that normally our priorities are based around. We base all our priorities based on the important people in our lives. And those are all great things. They're gifts from God. But if we're more devoted to them than we are devoted to Jesus, we make them an idol. The way Matthew's gospel records this makes it it absolutely clear. Matthew 10.37 says, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So yes, love your family members. Love your friends. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Absolutely. But don't allow your devotion for them to overshadow your devotion for Christ. Don't allow them to become more of a priority than following Jesus. But we shouldn't limit our understanding of what Jesus is saying to just prioritizing our relationships with other people. Because verse 26 goes on to say, and his own life also. And the word life can refer to a couple different things. First, it can clearly and easily refer to your old life, the one that you had before you met Christ, that old sin nature that Jesus died to separate you from. Because if we're not careful, we can find ourselves loving that old life when we should be hating it. Paul says in Romans 7, For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I that do... If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. So we need to be careful that we're not looking to our old sin. And hopefully that's obvious. 
But your life can, can also refer to the things that, that are not so bad, the things that aren't sin, quote unquote. Your life can, can also refer to your goals, your dreams, your aspirations, the things that establish your priorities. But even though they're not sin, those things that are normally centered around ourselves and our friends and our family, we make decisions based on where we live based on the needs of our family. We make decisions on what kind of job to have so we can make a good life for our kids. We make decisions based on what hobbies to have, based on what our friends' interests are. And the question Jesus is really asking here is if we're willing to make our decisions based on our relationship with him, the way we, we, we all seem prone to make our decisions based on our relationship with others. Are we willing to make our decisions based on what's best for him? Because too often we're not willing to consider him in our decision-making process. And frequently, we're not willing to consider him because we're afraid he'll ask us to do something that maybe isn't what we'd consider the best thing for our friends, our families, or ourselves. That's a heavy thing to consider. Jesus is asking us to be so devoted to him that we're willing to put all our other priorities on the back burner for his sake. Historically, he's asked some people to do this in a very literal sense. For example, historically, the 12 disciples forsook their families to follow Jesus. Uh, He asked his disciples, he asked these men to leave their friends, their families, and their jobs so they could be wholly devoted to following him, at least temporarily. One example you can see in Luke 9, verse 59 and 60, it says, And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. So Jesus has asked some people to give up a lot. And I'm not suggesting that you have to go home today and pack up a suitcase and literally leave your family in order to to follow Jesus. But ask yourself if you think you're really willing to do what God asks you to do, even when you have other options that clearly seem better for the people you're devoted to. Are you willing to be more devoted to him than you are to anyone else? Are you willing to put him ahead of all your other priorities? Because that's the mark of the true disciple. Your notes put it this way. Practically, a true disciple turns his priorities over to him. So we have to be willing to set our goals and dreams aside for his sake. We need to give up our life to gain his. Mark 8.35 says, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the Gospels, the same shall save it. And please don't confuse this with Jesus' free gift of eternal life. We talked about that. Becoming a Christian is easy. All you have to do is trust in Jesus' sacrifice to pay for your sins, and he freely gives you eternal life. But we're talking about this life right now that you're actually living. We all have priorities that direct what we do each and every day. And the question for each of us here today is what established your priorities today? Was it you? Was it your family? Was it your friends? Or was it the God of the universe who deserves your entire devotion? He should be the one directing us because Colossians 3, 3 through 4 says that he is our life. Are we living our lives like they belong to Christ? Because that's how his true disciples live. And living that way is simply a recognition of what has been true since you've been saved. Because if you've been saved, you confess Jesus as the Lord of your life, yet too often we don't act like he's the one who gets to call the shots. We put him on the back burner and we put other things that we're devoted to on the, the, the front burner. Is that, is that the way that goes? The key to understanding this is John 3, verse 30. It says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Are we willing to allow our lives to decrease for his sake so that he can increase? Because too often that's not even a thought that occurs to us to think about. And it's not even that he needs us to help him increase. He's the God of the universe. He's the creator of everything. But if we lay down our hopes, our dreams, and our priorities on the altar and allow him to be the one who shapes those for us, man, our lives will be able to put him on display in a way that we could never do on our own with all our goals and priorities. So yeah, make your plans. Have your dreams and your goals. Continue to do what's best for your friends and family. But would you let God be the one who shapes those plans? Be open to him changing those plans whenever he wants. Because Proverbs 16, 9 says, A man's heart deviseth his way but the Lord directeth his steps. And the problem is that some of us don't even spend enough personal time with him to know what it is that he wants from our lives. We don't even familiarize ourselves with his priorities, much less make his priorities our priorities. 
So are you, even, are you asking him what he wants from your life? Or are you just kind of going along with your plans until God intervenes in a big way and gets your attention? It's a lot easier to just allow him to shape your plans up front. But even if you do, you have to recognize that God's the one who's going to guide and direct your life if you let him. And sometimes that'll be fun. Sometimes it won't be fun. But there is a payoff to doing this. Being a true disciple has its benefits, uh, believe it or not. Those benefits are often not seen until much later, which is why being a true disciple is so unpopular. Each one of these costs has an associated payoff that ends up being greater uh, than whatever it is we lose. And the simple truth is that when you humble yourself and lay your devotions aside for him, you'll end up exalted. Matthew 23, 12 says, And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. So the real question is, when do you want to be abased? Now or later? If you're willing to humble yourself and be abased now, you'll be exalted later. But if you're not willing to do that, we'll end up abased later because our discipleship will be found lacking. That doesn't mean you're always going to be small and poor in this life if you follow Jesus. It just means that you'll be willing to be in whatever situation he needs you to be in. Like Paul says in Philippians 4, 11 through 12, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I am instructed to be both full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And I get it. Paul was a single guy. He didn't have a wife and kids to think about. And this is definitely an easier mindset for a single person to have. But having a wife or kids or or a husband, it doesn't absolve us from having to be willing to follow the Lord wherever he takes us. On the contrary, it just requires us to have more faith in him to take care of us when he asks us to do something difficult. A true disciple will always be willing to wholly devote himself or herself to Christ. But remember, being a true disciple is a daily decision. And understanding this cost of your priorities means you have to wake up every day and remind yourself who is worthy of your life. Because Jesus is the only answer. He bought and paid for your life, so the least we can do is shape our priorities and goals around our devotion to him. Well, we could do less, but that would disqualify us from being true disciples. The second cost we see is your peace. Uh, That's cost number two. And we see that in verse 27. And of these three costs, this one is the roughest one to talk about. Jesus says in verse 27, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And this one is is so rough because of what bearing your cross involves. Jesus set the example for us of what it means to bear your cross. Before he was killed, Jesus was beaten, mocked, And he was made to carry his own cross to the hill on which he would die a horribly painful and torturous death. He was made to carry that cross until he was physically unable to do so. It wasn't a very dignifying experience. And it certainly required him to give up his peace as he experienced pain and humiliation and suffering. The God of this universe humbled himself to not only be a part of his creation... But he also humbled himself enough to allow his own creation to torture and humiliate him as he loved them enough to die for their sins. It's incredible. And Jesus tells his disciples that if if they really want to follow him, each one will be bearing their own cross as they do. And that's heavy. But don't think that this has anything to do with bearing the burden of your your own sins or anything like that. I keep coming back to this because I I don't want to get our wires crossed here. The Bible's clear that when you accept Jesus' sacrifice for your sins, he takes all of those sins on himself. And doing that gives you an inner peace that passes all understanding. But bearing your cross requires you to give up your external peace for his sake. Bearing your cross just has to do with the suffering that you're willing to endure for the Lord. I told you this one wasn't going to be fun. It definitely wasn't fun for Jesus' disciples because historically the 12 disciples suffered physical persecution. All of his direct disciples would go on to suffer physical persecution and with the possible exception of John, they would all go on to be killed for their devotion to him. John ended up exiled on an island. I'm not really sure what happened to him. Maybe you are, I don't know, I'm not. But Jesus told them that this was gonna happen. They knew that this would be the cost of truly following him because he tells them in Mark chapter 10, 
Verses 38 and 39, he says, you know not what ye ask. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, we can. And Jesus said unto them, ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of and with the baptism that I am baptized with all shall ye be baptized. And the baptism he's referring to is, is still in the future tense here. He's referring to the suffering he would endure on his way to the cross. He's not talking about his water baptism that was in the past. That cup that he's talking about is the same cup that he asked God to take away from him when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was killed. It's the pain he was willing to endure to reach those he was trying to save. His disciples would go on to endure similar pain in similar situations, and hopefully no one in this room will ever have to endure such physical persecution. But we have to recognize that practically, a true disciple personally bears his cross every day. You and I will probably never have to be tortured and die for our devotion to Jesus. But can I ask a hypothetical question if you would be willing to do that? Because like I've been saying, truly following Jesus is something that is difficult. And we need to be prepared to face difficult situations when they come along. Not if. Everyone deals with difficult situations. Hopefully never to the point of physical persecution. And this is something we need to prepare ourselves for on a daily basis. That's why Luke 9.23 says, And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So taking up your cross is a daily decision, and that decision starts with the decision to deny yourself. That doesn't mean that you're going to suffer physical persecution every single day you decide to follow Jesus. But it, it does mean that you're going to suffer persecution at some point. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And our willingness to endure that is something we need to wrestle with every day. And that willingness to bear our cross plays out in our lives in two different ways. And the first way is letter A, we need to be willing to crucify our flesh. And I know that might sound a little strange if you're unfamiliar with this principle, but it's actually a pretty simple principle to understand, albeit a difficult one to apply If you're saved, your sins have been completely paid for and your salvation is 100% secure in Christ. That said, you're still stuck living in your sinful fleshly body until this life is over and Jesus gives you a new body that's free from sin. We all can't wait for that. But every single day in this life, your flesh is fighting for control of your body so that you do what it wants you to do. But if you're saved, you also have the Holy Spirit living inside of you and, and he wants to control you as well. He wants you to do what God wants you to do. The difference is your flesh just wants you to gratify your flesh, but the Holy Spirit wants to use your life to bring glory to God and see an eternal difference made from your life on earth. You're the one who's in control, and you're the one who gets to choose which one of those two gets what they want. That's why Colossians 3.5 tells us to mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Mortify means to put to death. So we need to mortify our members, those things that, we, that, that, that want to be a part of our lives, those things that we're still stuck with in our life that we can't quite be rid of yet. We need to mortify those. Those are the things that our flesh so desperately wants. And those are the things that lost people are bound to. Those are the things that, that they don't have the ability to escape from, but Jesus died to set us free from those things. That doesn't mean we don't have to worry about them. It does mean, though, that we have the ability to choose not, let, not to allow them to affect our lives. Galatians 5.24 says, And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. And that flesh that is crucified is explained in the verses prior to that as the works of the flesh. Again, it's adultery, fornication, uncleanness, idolatry, hatred, stuff like that. And we crucify that stuff when we prevent it from being in the driver's seat of our lives. And, but doing that is a daily decision, at least. Sometimes you've got to make that decision more than once a day. But too often, we Christians, we get a little too comfortable in our Christianity. Man, praise the Lord that he's secured our salvation. But shame on us if we use that as an excuse to sin. And we crucify that stuff when we prevent it uh, from, from, from having control of our lives. But, but often, we can't be bothered to do that. We can't be bothered to mortify our flesh, despite the fact that that Christ gave his literal body to suffer and die for us to have a relationship with him. We allow our sin to rule our lives even though Jesus died to free us from that same sin. And I get it. 
Doing this every day is easier said than done. But the process of doing it is pretty simple. Romans 13, 14 says, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. So you wanna crucify your flesh? You wanna not allow it control of your life? Don't make provision for it. Making provision for it just means to feed it. So don't feed it. Don't allow it the opportunity to get what it wants. Pay attention to what you allow in your thoughts so you don't start feeding your flesh. And you can do that by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ when you allow him to reign in your thoughts. And when you do that, your flesh doesn't get fed. And when you don't feed it, it starves. That's sad when it happens to a child's pet, but it's, it's good when it happens to sin. And when it starves, it dies because it's no, it no longer has the power to control you. And look, we're all gonna continue to struggle with sin until we meet Jesus face to face and properly dealing with it isn't something that we can do in our own power. We have to give it over to Jesus. That's why we put on the Lord Jesus Christ because he does have the power to kill it, to mortify it. And when we refuse our flesh, man, we just allow him to reign in our lives and, and, and he gets what he wants. Hopefully that's what all of us want. So we have to understand that this is part of the cost of being a true follower of Jesus because this is what it takes for us to truly allow him to use our life for his glory. Every day, we have to decide to put him in the driver's seat and throw our flesh, flesh in the trunk. Don't even let it be a backseat driver. Throw it in the trunk. That's a constant battle, and you'll wrestle with that each day. But it's not the only way we give up our peace for the Lord. We also endure difficulty uh, when we uh, fellowship in his sufferings, and that's letter B. We all recognize that Jesus suffered to do what he came to earth to do. But are we willing to suffer as well as we do what he tasks us with doing? Paul understood this. Look at what he wrote while he was in prison in Philippians 3.10. He says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Paul was willing to endure whatever level of suffering was necessary for Jesus' sake. Not only because he knew that doing so would allow him to fully serve the Lord, but he knew that such suffering would allow him to know Jesus. It would allow him to know him. It would allow him to fellowship with him in suffering. And it would make him conformable to Jesus. Look, we all understand this principle. Jesus suffered to the point of death for us. And when we endure suffering for him, we get a better idea of who he is and what he went through. We're closer to him. So Paul wasn't just willing to endure suffering. He welcomed it because he knew it would make him closer to Jesus. He was willing to forego having peace so that he could be closer to the Prince of Peace. Now he didn't necessarily go, out, go outside seeking to suffer. Like, I wonder where I could do some suffering today. Nobody's gonna do that. But he didn't let the thought of potential suffering stop him from doing what God asked him to do. He knew it came with the territory. We need to have the same willingness to sacrifice our dignity, our peace, and our comfort for our service to the Lord. Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And the mistake that we often make is thinking that if we suffer for Jesus, then, then we're going above and beyond the call of duty. We're, we're doing a pretty good job. That's just not true. Presenting your body as a living sacrifice is your reasonable service based on what he's done for you. It's normal. It's the thing we should all be doing. Being willing to endure whatever suffering is required to serve the Lord is a requirement of being a true disciple of Jesus Christ. That was true of the 12 disciples when Jesus was here and it's true of us today. How can you call yourself a true follower of Jesus if you're not willing to get dragged through the mud for his sake? How can you call yourself a true servant if you're not willing to get your hands dirty and endure a little bit of difficulty doing what he asked you to do? We're frequently just a little bit too comfortable with our peaceful lives in our world today and, and rare is the Christian who's willing to suffer for the Lord. Hebrews 11 talks about Christians who were willing to suffer. Uh, verses 36 through 38 says, and others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment, and they were stoned they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. 
like I've been saying, the Christian life is not always easy. In fact, I'd argue that it's rarely easy if you're truly trying to follow the Lord. It's not going to appear dignified as you're suffering for his sake. You're not always going to have that external peace that we all enjoy. But if you can remain faithful through the times of difficulty, like these, like these guys in Hebrews 11, man, God's going to be able to use your life in a way that he would otherwise be unable to do. You're going to have a closer walk with him as you fellowship in his suffering. And this point doesn't have to be all doom and gloom, though. Like I said, for each of these costs, there's a payoff that, that make it worth it for us in the end. And the payoff here is simple. If we suffer with him, we will reign with him. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 12 says, It is a faithful saying, For if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. So your salvation is secure, right? You, get, you getting to live forever in heaven with the Lord is, is unconditional as long as you're saved. But you getting to reign with him in his kingdom, that's not unconditional. That's very much based on your willingness to suffer for him. That privilege is determined by your willingness to suffer for his sake. It doesn't get much simpler than that. After all, he earned the right to be the Lord of our lives when he suffered and died for us. And he allows us to earn the right to reign with him when we suffer and potentially even die for him. That doesn't make for an easy life as a true disciple, though. It's not always going to be fun. But if you get tired of it, you can remember that rest is coming. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So you want some rest from all your troubles and suffering? Well, you'll have it when Jesus is revealed from heaven at his second coming, not before. We're not guaranteed rest before that. And the daily struggle is reminding ourselves of that and continuing to press forward through the suffering and difficulty. And thank the Lord that we can trust him that everything we go through will be worth it someday. And that's where our faith comes into play. Are we willing to trust what the Lord promises to us despite what we know it's gonna cost us? That's why we need to count the cost ahead of time because we know it's gonna be worth it in the end. And if we can continue knowing that through the difficulty, it'll make it easier to get through. And it's really important to know that when we're in the middle of the things, in the middle of those difficult things, because our faith in that knowledge will be what gets us through. So we have to be willing to give our priorities over to the Lord, and we have to be willing to part with our dignity by crucifying our flesh and fellowshipping in his sufferings if we want to be true followers of Christ. But the third cost Jesus mentions to being a true disciple is cost number three, your possessions. And that's what he gets to in verse 33. He says, so likewise, whosoever be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. And like the first two, man, understanding this, this cost is simple. I'm not going over anything groundbreaking this morning. Uh, this is pretty easy to understand. Again, it's just difficult to apply. You have to be willing to give up your stuff, what you own and control, if Jesus asks you to. Historically, the 12 disciples gave up everything they had. Uh, and this can be seen from the moment that Jesus asked them to follow him. Uh, look, look at the story in Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 16 says, Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. He does the same thing with James and John in verses 19 and 20. They didn't take time and wrap things up and go put things away. They just straightway forsook their nets and followed him. These guys gave up their livelihoods to follow Jesus. Being a fisherman wouldn't have netted you much income, pun intended. But what little income they had, they were willing to part with for Jesus' sake. And this, was, this is reflected in a conversation that Jesus has with Peter later on in Matthew 19. Verse 27 says, Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? These guys understood that Jesus was asking them to give up everything they had to follow him. And they were willing to do it because they knew it was worth it and it was going to be worth it. That doesn't mean Jesus is necessarily asking you to give up everything you have. But would you be willing to if he was? For us, practically, a true disciple has a correct attitude about his stuff. 
We can't be so attached to what we have that we're not willing to part with it for Jesus. And this is an incredibly difficult mindset for us to have in today's ultra-materialistic world. Again, this cost is simple to understand. It's just difficult to apply. As Christians, we understand that God asks us to give of what we have. 1 Corinthians 16, 2 says, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. So we're supposed to give to the Lord. But this cost isn't just about tithing or giving to missions, though that is a part of it. This cost of being a true disciple is having a proper understanding of your time, your money, and your other resources. A true disciple will understand that everything they have doesn't actually belong to them. It actually all belongs to the Lord. And how they live will reflect that. The conversation that Peter had with Jesus about forsaking everything to follow him, that conversation was prompted by another conversation Jesus had with a young, rich man who wanted to follow him. We can find that conversation um, in Matthew 19. And this rich young man who claims to have kept God's commandment since he was a child asks Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? Well, Jesus answers him in verse 21 uh, of Matthew 19. It says, Jesus said unto him, if thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But the young man heard that, heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So this guy knew what he needed to do to be a true follower of Jesus. Jesus told him outright, go and sell what you have. But he couldn't bring himself to do it because he loved his stuff too much. Sure, he followed God's commandments, but he didn't have the right heart attitude about the things he had. He wanted to follow Jesus, but he couldn't stand the thought of parting with his possessions. That's... That wasn't an unfair request, by the way, that Jesus made of him, because what he asked the rich guy to do was no different than what he asked Peter, Andrew, James, or John to do. He asked them to forsake what they had as well. The difference is this rich guy just had a lot more stuff than they did, so it was more difficult for him to forsake everything. That's why it's hard for rich people to be true followers of Jesus Christ. It's not impossible. Of course it's not impossible. It's just more difficult to maintain a proper perspective on your stuff when you have more stuff. And so you have to rely on the Lord to shape your perspective through that. Whereas these poor fishermen had a lot less to lose, it was easier for them to have the right attitude about what they had, though still difficult. Because all you have is literally all you have. And when Jesus asks you to give that up, that's a lot to ask. But man, we'll see that it was worth it. Because there's nothing actually wrong with having stuff. What we need to be willing to, but we need to be willing to part with it for the Lord's sake when he asks us to. How many missionaries do you think would be sent out if no one was willing to give up of their possessions? Cale and Brooke had to sell a lot of stuff before they moved because they can't take it all with them. True disciples of Jesus understand that the things they have are just temporary things and they're willing to give them up if they need to do so. I'm not telling you that you have to go home today and give away everything you got for Christmas or everything in your house to be a true follower of Jesus. But if we want to be true disciples, we just need to be content with what God allows us to have at any given point. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through, 10, or 6 through 8 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. So it doesn't matter how much stuff you amass, how much money you have. At the end of your life, it's, it's not yours anymore. Um, normally the government takes it all, but who am I to, who am I to judge? But if God sees fit to, ex or to change our circumstances so that we have less, we just need to be flexible. And we need to be willing to follow him regardless of how much we have or don't have. Uh, and that goes both ways. If he chooses to not let us have much, we have to be willing to follow him through that. If he chooses to let us have a lot, we need to be willing to follow him through that. And when he asks us to go do something that requires us to give up some of our stuff, we just need to have the right attitude and, and not struggle with that decision. And again, there's a payoff here, and, and this payoff is clearly worth it. There's actually some numbers here uh, that, that work out exactly how worth it this is. Jesus promises to keep track of what we give up for him, and he promises to reward us for it. In that same conversation he had with Peter, when Peter asks what they will get for forsaking, or what they'll get for forsaking everything to follow Jesus, Jesus actually answers him in Matthew 19:29. He says, and everyone that hath forsaken houses 
or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. So whatever you give up for Jesus' sake, he promises to return an hundredfold. You're not going to get that kind of return on your investment in your 401k or your IRA. You're not going to get that kind of return flipping cars or houses. Stink, the only thing that can come close is investing in cryptocurrencies, but let's be honest, that's a gamble. And you, and you get too excited and sell way before you got 100 times your investment. Only Jesus can offer this, this kind of return on our investments. And he's the only one that offers eternal returns. But we have to make sure our investments are in him for his name's sake. And we have to understand that we won't get to see those returns until his second coming. That's a long time to wait, although it's getting shorter every day that goes by. Think about that, that's deep. But can you trust in him that it's going to be worth it? I can't even tell you for sure how that hundredfold return on, on what you give is going to play out, on what you give up is going to play out, but will you trust him in that? This is where our faith comes in. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So you're not going to see those returns until much later, but if you have faith, those promises can be a motivation for you to continue having the right attitude about your possessions, even when you find that you don't have much. Hebrews 11 goes on in verse 13 to say, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. God has some great things prepared for his true disciples. And yes, he can provide us with what we need in this life, but we have to have the right attitude about what he allows us to have. And understanding that, and understanding that everything he gives us, gives us right now as a temporary resource that can be used for his glory, man, that's key. It's just understanding that what he gives us we're stewards of to, to bring glory to him. So be a good steward of what God's given you. Invest in your retirement. Save your money so you have it in an emergency. Take care of your home. Provide for your family. Give your family a good Christmas. But man, keep a correct attitude about the things you have and be willing to part with all of it if God asks you to. That's an attitude you must have if you want to be a true disciple of Christ. And so these are the costs we must accept if we want to be true disciples of Christ. Uh, these three costs. No longer can we believe we're his disciples because we come to church and finish the 18 discipleship lessons. Unless we're willing to give up our priorities, our peace, and our possessions for Jesus' sake, we can't claim to be his true disciples. And unless we become true disciples of Jesus, how can we ever hope for our lives to accomplish anything of value for him? Like I said at the beginning, salvation is a free gift. All you have to do is accept Jesus' death on the cross as payment for your sins and, and you can be saved. And you do that by confessing with your mouth that he's Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead with victory over sin and death. And that salvation is secure for eternity because his sacrifice is sufficient to forgive your sins, past, present, and future. But being a true disciple of Christ, that's not free. And we talked this morning about the three costs associated with being that true disciple. So this morning gives us a chance to count the cost and commit to following him, knowing what it's going to cost us. If I may be so bold, can I ask, is your word worth anything? What is your word worth? Think about it. When you got saved, you confessed Jesus as your Lord. So you told him he was the Lord of your life. Did you mean that? If you did, can I lovingly ask you, man, what business do we have keeping things from him when we told him he's the Lord of our life? As our Lord, he has the right to demand we give up our priorities, our peace, and our possessions for him. Sure, he'll allow us to hold on to those things if we want to. That doesn't make it right. And unless we're willing to turn over what he asks of us, we cannot be his disciples. That doesn't mean you're not saved. It just means he can't use your life the way he wants to. And when he can't use your life the way he wants to, he can't reward you the way he wants to either. Jesus compared this to a building project. So if we build towards eternal things, the things above, rather than temporary things here on earth, then we'll have something to show for our lives when we meet Christ face to face. And we know that living that way is gonna cost us some things now. Well, are, are you willing to do it? Because now that you know and understand what it's gonna take to really follow Jesus, 
You're not going to be caught off guard when you find your priorities are in conflict with his. You're not going to be caught off guard when you have to endure suffering for his sake. And you're not going to be caught off guard when he asks you to do something that requires you to give up your time, your energy, your money, whatever it might be. And now that you know and understand what it's going to cost you to really follow Jesus, are you willing to give up whatever Jesus asks of you? My prayer is that you are because Jesus will reward you for each and everything you give up for his sake. He wants to use your life for his glory and he wants to reward you for it. Will you let him? Will you commit to allowing him to do that? Because it's 100% your decision. No one can make that decision for you, but the question you need to ask yourself is the last thing in your notes. It says, is being a true disciple of Jesus Christ worth this cost to you? The bad news is at any time, you can decide to stop being a true disciple by withholding any of these costs from the Lord. But you need to count the cost of doing that. Are your own selfish desires worth not being used by the Lord? Are they worth not being rewarded in eternity? Because that's what you're giving up when you decide to withhold these costs from the Lord. Use that as motivation to stay on track and and, and remain a true follower of Jesus. That's the bad news. But the good news is at any time you can decide to start being a true disciple by humbling yourself and yielding everything you have to the Lord. Sure, That's going to cost you a lot. But now you can count the cost and know that it's worth it. You can use that as motivation to keep you going when things get difficult. Jesus wants to use you. And we know the true cost of allowing him to use us. So can we commit to being true disciples together? 2022 can be a very different year for you if you commit to being a true disciple. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the clear expectations you established for us in your word and Man, I just pray that we would be able to count the cost and we would be able to, to just commit to, to doing whatever it is you ask of us. Because in the grand scheme of things, Lord, we know you're not asking much. We know that our lives are, are temporary and, and they're small in comparison to the things uh, that you have planned for us. And Lord, I just pray that we would have the faith needed to, to embrace, embrace those things that you have planned for us, Lord. Um, You're clear you want to reward us, and that's hard for me to understand why sometimes, but Lord, we thank you for it. And we just pray that we would embrace the future and not the temporary. We would embrace the eternal and not the here and now. Enough that you can use our lives for for your glory and to make an eternal difference. In your name we pray, amen.